I'm going to start the recorder first. Uh, today we're going to pick up where Dan left off last week. Dan is on vacation. I believe right now he's actually in the air flying back. Um, but he was uh, in San Francisco with his family this week, so uh, I'm filling in for him. But I'm picking up right where he left off talking about uh, the sweet spot. That's the series that we are in. And the whole objective of this series is that we are looking to find a good balance in different vital areas of our walk with God. Last week, Dan talked about, is it possible to pray too much? And I know many of you right away would say, there's no way that that could be possible. But Dan pointed out a few areas where actually there's times when God's telling us, hey, I just want you to go right now. I already told you where to go. You don't need to pray about it anymore. I just want you to follow through on what I told you to do. And he pointed out a couple other things. But I'm going to touch on a topic that's probably just, you probably just as quickly say, that can't be possible at all. How could that be possible? And what I want to talk about is, can we have too much faith? Is it possible to have too much faith? faith. The uh, verse, the, the main verse of this series is Proverbs 25, 16, which says, do you like honey? Don't eat too much or it will make you sick. Don't go overboard with a good thing or it will make you sick. Can you go overboard with faith? Well, I'll tell you one thing that I don't believe you can do too much of, and that's playing golf. I do not believe that you can have too much. So you keep in mind, Proverbs was written thousands of years ago. They didn't have golf back then. So they weren't thinking of that when they wrote that verse. I'm telling you now, if that was written today, they would say, except for golf at the end. It would have to be included in there because I don't think you can play too much golf. You see, a few years ago, actually Greg Armstrong played a, a big part in this. He introduced me to golf. All right. So I started playing golf with Greg and another pastor friend of mine. And very quickly, very quickly, I fell in love with the game of golf. I, I caught the bug. And when I picked up golfing, you see, I wasn't very good. I'm still not that good, but I was definitely not very good when I started. So you don't go to like the really nice golf courses. You know, there's some really nice golf courses, but you don't go there because, you know, I don't want to like do a whole bunch of damage to their, their greens, stuff like that. So you go to the golf courses that are a little bit farther out in the country. You know, they don't, they don't cost as much. Those are the, the courses that you start on. So that's where I would go out to play. Now, because I started here, I got used to how it functioned at these golf courses. And one of the things is, the golf carts are, they're not as nice as some of the other golf courses. We'll just put it like that. So, you know, they're a little bit kind of falling apart, whatever. But what I always knew about golf carts was you could just drive them wherever you wanted to on, on the green, you know. Uh, especially when I was starting off, a lot of my shots would look good and then they would go way over to the right. So I'd get in the golf cart and I would drive over to the next fairway to find my ball. Um, and there was no problem with that. The golf cart would take me right over there. But then, one time I went and played at a nicer golf course. And I got in the golf cart, and it had a nice little screen inside of it. It had a whole map of the golf course. If you pulled it up next to your ball, it would tell you how far, how many yards it was to the, to the pin. You didn't need a range finder. It had a little option where you could, you could call someone to bring food out to you, to your cart. It was really, really nice. I'd never seen something like this before, but I remember one time 
uh, while I was in this cart, I, I, hit a, I hit a bad ball and I had to go retrieve it. So I did what I had always done with the other golf carts was I just drove my cart wherever I wanted to drive it to go get the ball. Started driving and I got to the middle of the fairway, between the fairways, and all of a sudden it started making this beeping sound and then it just stopped working. <laughs> and that's when I realized it had a GPS tracker on it. And they wouldn't let you just drive the golf cart wherever you wanted to drive it on the course. You had to stay within their boundaries. And if you went outside of those boundaries, the golf cart would let you know. You only had a few seconds to either throw it in reverse and get back within the boundaries, or the golf cart would just shut off. So that time, I didn't know what was happening. It shut off, and my friends had to come and push my cart back on to the, the course to get it back within the boundaries. See... The same thing is true about faith. Faith is like a golf cart that has a GPS system on it. There are boundaries to it. There's boundaries to faith. And so today, I want to highlight some of these boundaries so that we can all walk in the kind of faith that is responsible and that's honoring to God. Here's the main thing that I'd like to point out today, and this is the only thing you take away, then you've taken away my main point. It's this. Faith goes too far when it goes beyond God's word. Faith goes too far when it goes beyond God's word. You see, oftentimes I think that we approach faith like a golf cart without a GPS system on it. We get out on the open course and we just take the car wherever we will or desire to go. But faith is not an unleashed, untamed thing that we just get to use at our own discretion. You see, faith only works within the boundaries of God's word. Once it gets disconnected from God's word, once it gets disconnected from his promises or from his will, it loses power and it fails to operate. Until you can get it back in the boundaries of God's word, it will not function anymore. Faith per se has a GPS tracker on it. It has guidelines and boundaries. Now, I, I want to be clear. This is not so God can stifle our fun. This is not because God is mean and grumpy and just likes to say no. And draw lines. That's not what this is about. When we stay within the boundaries that God has put in place, His will is accomplished in our lives and in the world. And when we stay within the boundaries, that's the place that faith truly flourishes. So here's the first boundary marker that I want to set for us. Faith goes too far when God's word gets left behind. Let's look at an example of faith. We should start with someone called the father of faith. Don't you think that's probably a good place to start if we're going to talk about faith? The father of faith was Abraham. And of course, for us, when we want to look at a, a good example of faith, we automatically say, well, Jesus, right? And of course, that's the right answer. Jesus is absolutely the perfect example in all things. But here's the problem. Jesus wasn't born yet for the ancient Israelites. So they couldn't follow Jesus' example because Jesus had not set an example yet. 
So who do they look to? They look to a man named Abraham. Outside of Jesus, I'd contend that Abraham is the most significant person in Scripture. His one act of faith became the basis for God to birth the entire nation of Israel. And his one act of faith allowed God to begin his redemptive work to save the world once again after the fall of Adam. The ancient Israelites knew this, and so they actually held Abraham and Sarah in very high esteem. And they sought to emulate that act of faith in their lives. That was the hero of every young ancient Israelite boy. I want to be like Abraham. I want to walk in faith like Abraham walked in faith. And if you know this story, you know that God called Abraham from a foreign land. He was in his father's household, living with his father, doing what his father did, going where his father went. But God called to him and said, Abraham, will you leave your father's household and will you go to a land that I will show you? He doesn't tell him where it's at. He just says, will you go to a land that I will show you? And he makes a couple promises to Abraham. One one promise is that he says, I will bless you. And he says, I will make you a father of many in their own land. So there's the promise of multiplication, of having many kids. And then there's the promise of having their own land. Now, here's the problem with that. First off, Sarah's wife, or Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren. And then to make matters worse, they were actually both nearing an age where neither of them could have kids. So not only was she currently barren, but now they were both going to be barren in short time. Secondly, God is promising to give Abraham and his people a land to dwell in, but he won't even tell them where it's at. So we have an interesting situation, but this is where Abraham's faith truly shines. He still goes despite the uncertainty of the things that were promised to him. And after he arrives, he dwells in the land for quite some time, And then we get a peek. Scripture gives us a peek at a moment between God and Abraham. And this is it right here. Genesis 15, 1 through 6. Let me read this. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son who is your own flesh and blood, he will be your heir. He took Abram outside and said, Look up at the sky and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. See, Abram was right when he told God, I don't have an heir. 
And because I don't have an heir, a servant in my household is going to take over my entire estate. That was the common practice of the time. If you did not have a male son yourself, then you would pass on everything to a servant in your household. He brings that situation before God. He opens his heart before God. And God responds to him with a promise. He says, a son of your own flesh and blood will be your heir. And then God takes it even farther. And he tells Abraham, look up at the stars. Count them. This is how numerous your offspring would be. God actually overwhelms Abram with the promise. He said, oh, you, want, you just want one son? I'll give you that. Now go outside. And he's being so sarcastic with Abram. He says, count the stars if you can. That's going to be your inheritance right there. He overwhelms Abram with the promise. And as Abram is taking all of this in, Genesis 15, 6 says that he believed the Lord. He believed that God would do what he said he would do. And God credited credited it to him as righteousness. Let's look at how that whole situation unraveled. Abraham brought a need before God, not a demand. He brought a situation before God. Hey, this is what's going to happen. If I I don't have an heir, someone else is going to take it over. So he brings the situation before God. God responds with his plan of action, his promise. And then Abraham agreed with God's promise. God took initiative to give Abraham something to place his faith in. And then Abraham did his part by placing his faith in that promise. You see, faith comes through agreement with God's word. Faith comes through agreement with God's word. Faith is created at the intersection of God's word and our agreement. If you're missing either one of those things, you cannot have faith. If you're in agreement, but you don't have God's word to stand on, then you can't have faith. If God's given you a word, but you're not walking in agreement with that word, then you can't be walking in faith. You need those two things, God's word and agreement, in order to have faith. Faith is the combustion of those two things. Just quickly, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 1 and 20. Or 2 Corinthians 1 and 20, it says this. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. As in they are a sure thing. They are a sure thing. But then Paul goes on to say, And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. God's promises are never going to fail. But Paul said he needs the amen. He needs the agreement from us. Because that's where faith is born. But if God's word is absent, then we can't actually be walking in faith. I hear this all the time. People say, I'm walking in faith. But when you pry a little bit, you realize they're actually walking in hope. But they're not walking in faith because they don't have a word that they're actually standing on. Hope is the eager expectation that something will happen. Absolutely, it's part of God's word. It's a good thing. But faith 
you got to get this. Faith is the certainty that it will happen. Hebrews 11.1 says, Faith is the confidence in what we hope for. You see, those two things are different. I can have hope for something, but faith is what tells me I know that what I hope for will happen. But if we don't have God's word, then faith is absent. And all we're doing is hoping for something, but there's no certainty behind it. Many people walk in hope, but they don't have the word that provides the assurance. Sherry just brought up Peter walking on water. You know, one thing, you know, Peter did, he, he, he messed up at the end. But one thing we have to give to Peter is he tells Jesus, I won't step out of this boat until you tell me to come. You catch that? Peter understood, unless he speaks, unless I have a word to stand on, I cannot go. So he insists, you must say something to me. Because when you speak, and I come into agreement with it, there's where faith is born. And it allows you to walk on water. We need to have the same stubbornness in our life. We can't be flippant. Let's just say I'm walking in faith. We need to be stubborn by saying, unless I have God's word, unless I have something to stand on, then I can move forward. Then I can move forward. No matter what the situation is, first stop and seek God's word and his promise. And do not move on until you have it. That could be God reminding you of something that he promised in his word. It could be a Bible verse that he gives to you. And he says, this is what you are to stand on in this situation. But until you have that, you cannot move forward. It may be praying in your room by yourself and the Holy Spirit speak. Come on, we're, we're Pentecostals here, right? We're charismatic, right? We believe that God speaks to us. It could be getting, in, getting on your knees before God and He speaks a word to you. And that becomes the foundation for your situation. But until you have it, you cannot move forward. You need God's word in order to have faith. Here's another thing that we can learn from Abram. Faith goes too far when it denies what is seen. Faith goes too far when it denies what is seen. See, here's the thing about faith. Faith acknowledges what is seen even if it does not line up with what God has said. Faith still acknowledges what is seen even if it does not line up with what God has said. Abram and Sarah did not deny the fact that she was barren. Not only can we clearly see that from the fact that Abram came before God and said, my wife is barren. But if we look at the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans 4, 18-22, look at Paul's recounting of those events. Let me read this. Romans 4, 18-22, it says this. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed, and so became the father of many nations, just as it had been said to him so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. 
Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. Paul not only acknowledged what was the fact, Paul actually emphasizes the severity of the situation. Look at the, the, he said, as good as dead. He doubles down on it. He doesn't lighten it. He doesn't say, oh, you know, they were struggling. No, he said, good as dead. There was no way they could have had a kid. He doubles down on the severity of the situation. I've noticed over time in my life and in the lives of other Christians that it feels like a faith-filled act to actually reject the reality that we are presented with. Maybe it's a diagnosis that we receive, or maybe it's just the truth of a mess that we've created in a relationship. Instead of acknowledging the severity of the situation, our faith response is to alter it or downplay it or to outright reject the reality of the situation. How different of a story would it have been if faith-filled Abraham just continued to confess, Sarah's not barren. Sarah's not barren. Nothing to see here. We're walking in faith. She's not barren. We're going to have a child any day now. If Abram, if Abram had done this, then he never would have brought the situation before God. Thus meaning he never would have received the promise from God. Thus meaning he never would have seen the promise fulfilled. Because he just would have continued to say, Nothing to see here. I'm just going to, this is my faith act just to ignore what's actually happening in front of me. You see, denying what is seen actually robs us and it robs God. If you claim that such and such a thing never existed, then how can you give praise to God for removing it? If there was never a problem, then how could God solve it? If there was never a sickness, then how could God heal it? See, I realize that most of the time, if we're being honest, we're not actually walking in faith, but it's actually an act of fear. Because we're afraid of the unknown. And we know that the situation is completely out of our control. And so our fear response is actually just to deny the existence of the matter Altogether, The reason that I know it's a, an act of fear is because most of the time the people that say such, such a thing doesn't exist, they're also simultaneously praying about it. So before God, they're praying for it to be solved, but before man, they're saying, nothing to see here, nothing to see here. We can also feel like acknowledging or even confessing the severity of what is at hand can be faithless. See, God never told us to walk in ignorance as an act of faith. I believe that one of the most faith-filled things you can do is to fully acknowledge the situation at hand and then submit it to the Word of God. One thing I do know is that true faith loves a good fight. True faith loves a good fight. Come on. Oh, yeah, no. This womb is as good as dead. But God said. But God said. 
True faith, true faith says that no matter what has been thrown my way, God's word shall prevail over it. It doesn't matter how bad the diagnosis is. It doesn't matter how bad the mess is. If God said, then why does the reality even matter? I don't have to ignore it. I don't have to downplay it. I don't have to make it something that it's not. If God said, if God said, we can confess both realities and also confess the victor. Part of our faith is to fully acknowledge what is seen in order to submit it to what is unseen, which is the Word of God. Instead of denying, bring the full reality before God. Hey, if you've made a mistake, confess it. Confess it before God. Confess it before others. If you receive the diagnosis that you don't like, go and tattletale on the doctor to God. (laughs) Then get His Word Get his promise and go to war. Here's the third thing. Faith goes too far when Scripture isn't balanced with itself. You see, it's easy to focus on one verse without weighing it against other parts of Scripture. When I was living in California... I'm going to get really real with you guys. Uh, just a raw example of this. When I was living in California, I had seven roommates. And a couple of those roommates, uh, right at the beginning of my time there, uh, I was working at Target. And they asked me if I could get them jobs at Target. So I went in, I talked to my manager, and put in a good word for them, and I got both of them jobs at Target. So they started working. They made it about a couple months before they started getting really spotty with how often they were showing up for their shifts. And of course, I was the one that was getting the flack for it because I was going to put the word in for them. So, hey, we're so and so. Why aren't they here today? You know, they were on the schedule. And, and I come from the truth was I knew that they had stayed up late playing video games the night beforehand. They were just sleeping. But, anyways, they had slowly just sputtered out. And they stopped coming to work uh, at Target. And they didn't have any income. That's why they needed a job in the first place. And, and I remember. When we would bring it up, you know, all the roommates would bring it up to them. Oh, why, you know, why aren't you working anymore or whatever? Well, they would continue to cite, well, God's a good father and he provides for all my needs. And, and they kept saying it. And they kept saying it. And let me tell you, God provided ramen noodles <laughs> and sliced bread and peanut butter and jelly. And that's where the provision stopped. And God provided for their electric bill. And God provided for their rent through the rest of their roommates. We all had to get together and cover that electric bill. We all had to get together and cover one guy's last two months of rent. Oh, God provided all right. If we're going to latch on to God's promises, we need to balance it out with the instruction that is given alongside of it. Yes, God will provide for all of your needs. But what do you make of 2 Thessalonians 3.10, which says, For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule. The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. One word of God cannot come at the compromise of another word from God. Yes, Jesus has forgiven all of your sins. But let's look at 1 John 1.9. It says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just 
and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, God has provided forgiveness for all of your sins. But he says, confess those sins before God. Confess those sins before God. That's part of the process. That's part of the instruction. We can't divorce these things. Yes, God has good plans for your life. We all know Jeremiah 29.11. But look at the next few verses. Let me just read 12 through 14. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Yes, God has good plans for you. But you know what that includes? Seeking Him, praying to Him, getting before Him, developing intimacy with Him. You have to take all of it in. Yes, He has good plans for you, but He wants to spend time with you too. If we're going to keep our faith within the boundaries of God's Word, we must keep it within the boundaries of all of God's words. This means taking the time to understand the implications of certain promises and scriptures and being responsible. This is an issue of being responsible with God's word. He is a good God. He's given us good promises, but he's also given you a brain. And he's asking you to be responsible with his word. Faith is a powerful gift. That God has given to us. Faith is what allows us to see and agree with God's plan. Through this agreement, God is able to work out his promise in our lives and he's able to bring it to completion. And we can be responsible with this gift by staying within the boundaries that God has asked of us. Church, let's be responsible with faith. Let's be responsible with God's word. Let's make sure that he's able to be effective in our lives. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we just thank you so much for this this gift that you have given to us. I ask on behalf of all of us, myself included, that you would forgive us for any time that we've been irresponsible with faith. And Jesus, I ask that you would give us the grace to be that responsible church. A church that loves your word. A church that seeks after your word. That labors for your word. A church that knows your voice. A church that is stubborn, saying, I will not move. Until I have God's word. I will not step out of the boat until he says, come. Would you teach us to be dependent on your word, Jesus? I thank you that each one of us that has confessed your name has already heard your voice. There is no excuse anymore. I don't know how to hear the voice of God. Well, you heard it once. Because that's why you're here. So, Father, I just ask that you would increase our ability to discern and to understand your word. And I ask that you'd make us into a people of strong, strong faith that bears much fruit for your kingdom. We pray all these things in your name. Amen.
Well, church, be blessed as you go. Stay in your word and be responsible with the faith that's been given to you. We'll see you next week.